morning, as it is Palm Sunday, uh, it's a day when we remember, we celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. In a sense, the beginning of a week that would end in the salvation for his people. And we are not in a series this morning, uh, so we're breaking from our series. Uh, We'll have a new series that starts after Easter. But this morning, we're going to look at a passage in Luke chapter 19 uh, that directly precedes in the Gospel of Luke his triumphal entry. Jesus is in Jericho in this passage, uh, and he's traveling from Jericho eventually into Jerusalem. If you would turn your Bibles to page, uh, if you're using your pew Bibles, to page 878, and as you're doing that, uh, little theologians, would you consider, if your parents permit, would you consider drawing something that you would hate to lose or something that you may have lost that it, it took a long time for you to find, and when you found it, you, you were super excited? Would you draw something that you would hate to lose or something that you lost and found and made you super excited? Now, this is a long text. And I'd ask that you'd bear with me as, as we read through it and as we hear it. Um, listen, listen to God's word. Know that this is his word for us this morning. Would you follow along from Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, Bring them here and slaughter them before me. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Would you pray with me? Our gracious Heavenly Father, you are the one who reigns over every kingdom. 
And even as we hear your word this morning, we would ask that you'd impress your reign onto our hearts, that you'd foster an excitement at what you are at work doing. Would you open our eyes to your faithful love this Palm Sunday, that we would grow to love and to follow in all of your ways. So bless your word into our lives now, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, imagine a scenario in which you are sitting in your home and you are watching outside a very obviously wealthy businessman walk around your neighborhood. He's dressed in a very nice suit, he's driving a very nice car, and he's going door to door. And when he finally reaches your door, he introduces himself and you introduce yourself. And when he hears your name, he explains, well, I work and own a company in which we have been slowly over the last few years stealing from you and everybody in this community. And I've probably stolen from you directly probably around $10,000. And before you can even respond to what he's saying, he pulls out $40,000 in cash and he hands it to you. And he explains that something has changed in his life. He sat down and had lunch with a king. What questions would you begin to ask in your mind? That situation sounds so abnormal. But this is exactly what happened in Jericho in the passage that directly precedes our passage. Jesus has entered in Jerusalem, he healed a blind man as he was coming in, and he sought out a man who was a very wealthy man. In fact, he was called the chief tax collector. His name was Zacchaeus. And that encounter with that man caused the crowds following Jesus to be in an uproar. They were upset, they grumbled. How could this man meet with this chief tax collector. And Jesus said to them that he was coming to seek and to save the lost. He says that in response to what he had done in Zacchaeus' life. Zacchaeus was a man who was living in a world taking from others unjustly and collecting taxes. And his response to meeting with Jesus was to give back away fourfold in the midst of this community in this city of Jericho. An encounter with Jesus who's seeking to save the lost led to a change in this man's life that affected the whole community. Think about that. Think about a kingdom that's coming that doesn't just affect us individually, but has implications for a whole community. Imagine what justice would look like. Imagine what peace would look like. Imagine what fellowship would look like in a kingdom where everyone lived, not centering around themselves, but giving their lives away for others. It's a kingdom worth being excited about. You see, when we hear the word kingdom and the growth of a kingdom, it can be a little scary for us. We hear and see stories of all sorts of kingdoms. We, we're hearing about the kingdom of Russia invading another kingdom. It scares us. It's why it's on the news almost 24-7, daily updates on what Russia's doing to Ukraine. And we read about it, 
We read about it and it scares us because that kingdom advances and it advances through things like hypersonic missiles. It advances through things like putting landmines that will devastate cities for years to come. It scares us because it's a kingdom that advances in a horrific way. And Jesus is explaining to this crowd, he's explaining to us that he's coming to bring a kingdom But the kingdom he brings isn't in the bloodshed of others. It's in the bloodshed of the king himself. That's how this kingdom advances. That's what this kingdom is about. It's about his pursuit on this road to Jerusalem that would would end in his own death. And by his stripes, his people will receive healing. This is a kingdom, friends, that is worth being excited over. And Jesus describes three reactions to this coming kingdom, three responses. And if you you start to get lost, there's an outline in the sermon notes that you can follow along in with these three reactions. He says the first reaction is one, in a sense, of excitement excitement about this coming kingdom, that it's going to to change the world, and that excitement helps them engage faithfully, faithfully as good servants. But then there's a second response. This response is, is not like those other servants. It's a response that's based in fear because they don't understand who this king is. And this servant, this servant doesn't trust in the king. And then there's a third response. And this response is perhaps the saddest and it's the most cautioned response that Jesus gives in this parable. It's one of hatred of this coming kingdom. Direct defiance. It's not a delight in the kingdom. It's a rejection of it. So we're going to look at three responses We're going to see the positive sides that we're called to, that Jesus is cautioning us to be instead of in light of this passage. So we endure faithfully, we trust in the king, we delight in the coming of the kingdom. Let's consider these. Would you look with me at the beginning in verse 12? Jesus said, he tells them this story because he he tells them this because the kingdom's going to take time. This isn't going to be an immediate uh, bringing of the fullness of the kingdom. And he says this as he tells the story, this parable. He says, he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. Let's pause it there just for a moment to consider what Jesus is saying. He's telling this parable. He's, he's describing himself, this nobleman. It's, it's a picture of who he is as the king, a picture of what he's seeking to do and build a kingdom. He's going to bring a kingdom, and that kingdom is going to come. It's going to take a long time. It's not coming immediately like this crowd might think. But in this story, this nobleman, he, he sets a, a, a plan out in which he gives 10 of his servants, calling to them, gives them a, a mina. Now, what is a mina? A mina is approximately in those days about uh, 100 days of wages. 
So if we were to take uh, our, our average day in the U.S., average amount people work, and we would go out about 10 uh, or 100 days, this would probably be about fifteen dollars to $25,000. Each servant gets the same amount of resources, no more than the other. And as he gives them these minas, he also gives them a direction. But it's a simple direction, engage in business. Go engage until he comes. That's a unique phrase in Scripture. It's only used here. It's used in a different form uh, in a verse later. But he's telling them to go out and do business with these minas. It's also important to note it's a command. He commands them to. But he doesn't give them a description of what kind of business. In a sense, he gives them freedom to use what he's given them in the ways that they see best only calling them to be faithful, faithful in such a way that 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 word it refers to the trading, the the active work of being in, in mercantile business. Go out and be faithful in trading. Give away, in a sense, these minas. Go and make gains by giving away, by trading. And he doesn't set a goal. He doesn't instruct on the amount of percentage required when he gets back. He just tells them to be faithful, engage faithfully. You see, the the servants who hear this, who are excited and knowing what the kingdom is about, and they're excited that he's coming again, they're going to take and they're going to listen and they're going to seek to build up that kingdom. They're going to sense to, to prepare people and bring people into that kingdom because that kingdom is a good kingdom and it's worthy of our lives and our time and our resources and our energies. So what does Jesus mean in saying mina here? What's what's it represent? Well, there's a huge breadth of theological discussion as to what it means. But here's my thought. Jesus has just demonstrated the mission of the kingdom in the life of Zacchaeus. The kingdom's business is to seek and to save the lost. And what's happened to Zacchaeus is a change in his life brought about by receiving and being given the kingdom. The kingdom has turned him from someone who focuses inward to somebody who's now faithfully giving out of himself. And in this encounter with Jesus, the kingdom of has completely changed, not his life, but will ripple into the community. And through that community, it will ripple beyond that city of Jericho. Because Zacchaeus was excited in his encounter with Christ as king, who loved him and spent time with him. Zacchaeus brought that mina, that kingdom, into his life, into his vocation. He was bringing biblical justice And he was testifying to a world that didn't trust tax collectors what a a biblical tax collector looks like. Not corrupt, but exercising justice. You see, whether you are a teacher or whether you are a musician or a doctor or a business owner, faithful engagement in the kingdom means we live under the reign of Christ. It means that the kingdom is going to be building up in the sake of the community by the way we live, by the way we understand and receive his death and resurrection for us, that we allow that work to shine through us 
For some of you this week, the reign of Christ has caused you to drive great distance to honor a father when it was terrifying. For some of you this week, the reign of Christ has caused you to love a spouse and remain faithful when it's hard and difficult. For some of you this week, the reign of Christ has meant not living in shame because you know you're loved by a God who would give his life for you and you live in the confidence of his acceptance. For some of you, you took the risk of trusting that Christ would take care of your daily provisions. I had a seminary professor who used to say, it might be more godly for you because of the reign of Christ to get a C on a test and love your family well than to get an A. You see, this week, each one of us will have the opportunity to demonstrate the reign of Christ in our lives by the decisions we make, by the way we present Christ. But we put aside our own purposes and our own goals set aside our own life so that we might extend the love and grace that we've received to another. These are moments when we are faithfully engaging in the kingdom of God. Jesus desires this. The second thing that he says in this passage, the second thing that happens is ultimately we are called to trust in the king. He says it by examining the results of what happens and the actions of this wicked servant. Look with me in verse 15 and 16. When he, the nobleman, had returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had, ha what they had gained by doing business. There's that word again, by faithfully trading. He calls 10, he gives 10, we only hear from three. Jesus doesn't explain why, but we have these three responses. The first comes, and he's excited. You can see he comes because he's first. Lord, your mina has made 10 more minas. Now notice what he says here. He, he doesn't say, look what I've done. Look at my works that I've brought to you. He actually says what your mina has done. What your grace has done in the world around, it's produced tenfold what I started with. If the work of Christ is, is this mina and it's changed our lives, then we can faithfully see God is going to use it. We can trust him to produce more fruit in this, for the sake of the kingdom. We read this, uh, this response in verse 17. Jesus says, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you will have authority over ten cities. What a joy to hear the words, well done, good servant. And that word good, it, it means useful or faithful. This person isn't necessarily given a reward. They're given more responsibility in the kingdom. They're recognized for their faithfulness. The goal isn't the reward, but the recognition is a recognition of faithfulness. They trusted in their king. Now, just to put into comparison, and it's important to hear this because we have to understand the generosity of the king in order to understand the wicked servant's response or his response to the wicked servant. If those minas were worth fifteen dollars to $25,000, and he gave one to each of them, 
how much value do you think a city is worth in the U.S. today? The U.S. Department of Finance has looked at various cities. It's valued a city like New York to be over worth over $1 trillion. The same with a number of cities in the U.S. The top 10 cities valued over a trillion dollars. So here, what, what the king is doing, he's, he's giving them something small and seeing their faithfulness, but the reward is so vast because he's a generous king. And he honors faithfulness. The point is that we would trust him. Trust him when it's hard. Trust him when we don't see the fruits right now, the fullness of his kingdom. That we would endure and trust in the scenarios that we are in, in the hard situations, that we would look to him and know that he's coming. And that his mission to seek and to save the lost is our mission, our primary mission in all of our lives and all of our vocations is to bring his kingdom to bear and to subdue all things to the reign of Jesus. But then there's this shift that takes place in verse 20. This third servant approaches him. Lord, here is your mina, he says, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you. You hear that word fear? Because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. Now this servant received again the same amount that the others had received. But he did nothing with it. In fact, he rejected the king's command to go and do business. He hid it. He did the exact opposite of what that king told him to do. He put it in a, a, a handkerchief and he set it aside. See, some, were, some theologians were thinking that perhaps he was even waiting to find out if his king would even return. But this servant describes his understanding of the king. He says, I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. Now, the servant's words here, in a sense, are not true because we've just heard about the severity, in a sense, of how he's treated these other two. He's a generous king. He's a generous king who entrusts freely these, this gospel. And the king uses his own words to condemn him, he says. He uses the description and the understanding that the man has to condemn him. And he takes away what he had and gave to the one who was faithful. In his words, he says this, the nobleman, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. Now that word wicked also means, just like good can mean faithful, wicked can mean faithless or useless servant. You knew I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow, when did you not put my money at least in the bank, at least to gain some interest, at least to have something? This was a complete rejection of the kingdom, a complete rejecting of the gift that the king had given. This servant was disinterested in the growth of the kingdom, and he lived in a disabling fear that outweighed his ability to trust that the king would take care of him. It led him, in fact, to blame the king, blame his character for the lack of investment. 
See, Jesus wants you to live in a relationship with him in which you see that he loves to save those who are lost. He doesn't want you to live with a crippling, disabling fear of him. He wants you to know that he is gentle and lowly. He comes riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. He comes with a mission that's ultimately going to lead to his death. And there is severity there. There's the severity of our sins. But he's the one who pays for those sins. He's the one who embraces death itself so that death would not touch his people. He wants you to trust him as he lays down his life for you, that you know that love, and even in the cost of laying down our lives for others, we would do it because of how deep his love is for us. When we live with crippling, disabling fear, we become consumed with ourselves. We can become consumed with our own security that we're unable to see those outside of ourselves. We're not able to see, seek and save the lost. Jesus calls us to trust him. It says Job 13 talks about, though he slay me, I will hope in him. It's the picture that C.S. Lewis gives in A Horse and a Boy when Quinn the horse encounters Aslan the lion. And he says, please, you're so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. I'd rather be eaten by you than by, be fed by anyone else. You see, our circumstances might feel overwhelming to us, but we don't despair. We trust in a king who upholds us and we faithfully engage in that kingdom. He will secure our salvation. He will not let us lose those meanness as we're faithfully proclaiming and living in his reign. The third response we see in this passage is the response of the citizens, the faithless citizens. This is a caution again, just like the wicked servant is a caution from Jesus. This is a caution. It's one that as we see the opposite of them, perhaps we are to consider how to delight in the growth of the kingdom. But we see the opposite of that in this parable. We see these beginning in verse 14, these citizens who it says they actually hated him. They sent a delegation to try to stop him from reigning and bringing this king and this kingdom. This group of people we're hearing about, they're disturbed by the news of what this kingdom is. So they know that he's coming to seek and to save the lost, but they hate his reign and they hate what his reign means. What they're doing is they're rejecting the message that Jesus has just told them that he's seeking to save the lost. You see, they don't want to acknowledge that they're lost, perhaps. They certainly don't want to admit that he needs to be their king. One pastor put it this way, if you cannot see your king on a cross, you will ultimately seek to see yourself on a throne. That's perhaps what these faithless citizens ultimately want. They want their own kingdom. They want it, the kingdom that comes in their own understanding. They don't want to see the extension of grace to sinners. They want to be owners rather than tenants. 
You see, it's important to understand this in light of Palm Sunday because these crowds that were around Jesus in Jericho, they were following him into Jerusalem and they were following him, likely saying, these, these same crowd likely will say to, in Jerusalem, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The declaration that's made as Jesus walks in, Hosanna. But when they find out that his mission is not to reign in the expectations and manners that they want, by the end of the week, they're going to be shouting, crucify him. See, this crowd of whom Jesus speaks is a crowd that doesn't want a part in the kingdom Jesus is bringing. And Jesus clarifies what happens to these. It sounds harsh. It's in verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This sounds terrifying, doesn't it? We need to understand that these people, having heard about the kingdom, are actively working to prevent his reign. And it's as if Jesus is saying, I will not stop on my mission. I will not be deterred from my goals that come from my heavenly Father. No enemy that stands against me will be able to stop me. No resistance, not even death itself, the greatest of enemies, will be able to stand against the coming of the mission that I bring to save my people from their sins and from death itself. Nothing will stop this king. Coming of the kingdom is one in which we should see is, is one of great joy. It's one that we should see where we delight in the people's use of, of the minas that they have been given to them, that we would see the building up of the kingdom until he returns. Can you imagine a community that celebrates a faithful servant who's laboring and who will receive ten, ten times what they've, they've been given? Can you imagine the delight rather than the envy of what that does in a community. Instead of being envious of seeing the rewards, of delighting and rejoicing in the rewards and fruitfulness of a king who rewards those who are faithful, how would that change our attitudes? How would that change a community as we seek to build up one another and to delight in what he's doing in his kingdom? Well, a number of years ago, I met a man named Paul Paul was married. He worked for AT&T as a very high-level executive. And if you were to ask Paul what his life was like in the days uh, before a significant event took place, he would say that his life was about building up his kingdom. He would use those words. My life is about building up my kingdom. He wanted everything safe and secure. And in his mid-50s, he went on one of his favorite activities, a bike ride, just a simple bike ride around town and uh, was severely hit by a car. The doctors who were able to treat Paul had said that he should have been killed, but he ended up with some neurological damage. This damage affected the right side of his body so that it really disabled his right arm. And when he was released and returned home, uh, he would tell you that he felt lost and overwhelmed. He had no idea what he was going to do how his life would, would end. But what he didn't know is that while he was building his kingdom, his wife was engaged in Christ's kingdom and had been doing so quietly for many years. And what 
Paul felt was religious nonsense, he saw as something worth building up because of her life and her actions towards him. For a decade and a half, as he struggled to do even basic movements, she loved, provided, cared. She stepped in and gave her life for him because of what Jesus had done for her. And not knowing what to do with this kingdom, Paul knew his life was changing, seeing and experiencing an encounter with Christ through his wife. And this affected him dearly when his wife was given Parkinson's. And his dear wife, this dear woman, struggled with her inability to do simple tasks herself. In the midst of that, God gave motor capabilities back to Paul and his arm. But his life had changed from building up his kingdom to faithfully engaging in loving and caring for his wife. In trusting in the king and the work of the kingdom, the king had brought him and changed his life from being so inwardly focused to now giving his life to his wife and to those to whom he could. In this, he found delight in growth in the kingdom. This Palm Sunday morning, we need to look to Jesus and his mission. That we would know that he came to seek and to save the lost. And that he's called us to engage faithfully in the kingdom, to trust him with our lives and to learn to delight in the growth that he's doing to build up his kingdom. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, you are the one who saved us. You've brought your kingdom to bear on us by your grace and mercy. We were lost apart from you, but you found us. Would you increase our excitement in your kingdom this morning that we would engage faithfully in the face of trials and struggles, our own heartaches. Lord, that we might present to you an investment of your work inside of us one day. We thank you for coming on Palm Sunday to face what you faced, our sin and death itself. And would you help us to all the more delight in you for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.